Philippians chapter 4. If you've been here on Sunday mornings, you know I've been preaching through Philippians the last couple of weeks. Pastor Zach took two of those messages, and we find ourselves today in chapter 4 of Philippians. So we're winding down uh, the book of Philippians study that we have going on. By design, a rubber band. I have one here in my hand. I know you probably can't see it if you're anywhere but in the front. But by design, a, a rubber band is made to stretch and then return to its original shape. That's, that's why we like them. But if you put too much pressure on the rubber band and it stretches, that's why I got my safety glasses on, uh, it stretches and it stretches too far, it stresses and it breaks. And it's no longer useful after it snaps. By the way, I picked a small, skinny rubber band so I could break it. Uh, had some of those bigger ones, man, they were strong. So in some respects, rubber bands are a little bit like our lives. We are designed to handle stress. We're, to, we're designed by God to be able to stretch and, and expand, and not just in the waistline, but stretch and expand and to handle the stress that comes into our life if we walk with the Lord. And that's the key thought here. In this passage of scriptures, Philippians chapter 4, is a common one that talks about worry. Matter of fact, it's probably the most common passage that deals with worry. What is worry? Well, in our, in our New King James, if that's what you have in your hand, uh, it's telling us, don't be anxious is the way it says it. In the old King James, it says, don't be careful. That is, that's why that word was changed in the new King James translation. You know, the idea of don't be careful is like, oh, be flippant about your life. You know, just go through life carelessly. That's not what it's saying. That old King James word, careful, means to be full of cares, be loaded up with all of these cares and worries and these burdens and these problems. He says, don't be careful or don't be anxious about anything, but be prayerful in everything, is what he's telling us. So the Bible tells us here that this word worry is translated anxious. And, and we do get anxious in life. Our hopes pull us in one direction, and our fears pull us in the opposite direction. Pretty soon, it's, we're stretched in different directions. And we're pulled apart is the idea. The old English root from which we get our word worry comes from the word which means to strangle. And you know that if you've been consumed with some worries, you feel like, man, I feel like I'm getting choked down. I'm worrying about these things. I, I feel like I'm getting throttled. Somebody's got me in the half Nelson. So it means to strangle. Worry means to strangle. And if you've worried, you know that worry has definite physical consequences. The medical establishment will tell you that it has physical consequences. It causes headaches. It causes neck pain. It can cause ulcers. It can cause even joint problems, arthritic problems. So one observer said this, worry affects our cognition, it, it affects our digestion, 
and it affects our coordination. And there's truth in that statement. Worry affects us. And we have stress. None of us are going to deny that we don't have stress. But God has designed us to be able to have stress and to deal with it properly. So from a spiritual perspective, we talked about the physical perspective, but from a spiritual perspective, worry is wrong thinking, things going on in our mind, which produces wrong feelings in our heart. Wrong thinking produces wrong feelings about circumstances, people, or things that are taking place in our life. That's what worry does. Worry, the Bible tells us, is the great thief of joy. It steals away our joy. You can't have joy when you're worrying. When you're worrying, you can't experience joy. It's the thief of joy joy. It's an inside job taking place. It's not somebody coming at us with a knife or a gun. It's an inside job. It's what worry does to us. And it takes more than just good intentions. It takes more than just the mindset, well, I'm going to quit worrying. I'm just going to live a flippant, careless life. It takes more than that to fix the problem, and I recognize some personalities are given to worry much more than others. Some should be worrying more, or at least be caring more than others. So uh, we're going to talk about worry a little bit here this morning. It's kind of the focus of this passage, but there's more in this passage than just the, the text that deals with don't be full of care, but instead prayer. If we're to conquer worry and experience peace, we must, we must understand the conditions that God lays down for us in this text of Scripture if we're going to live properly. So you could maybe put a subtitle here, and I do have that. In my notes, I'm talking about spiritual stability. I think that's the greater context of these nine verses. But you could also subtitle it because he deals with winning the war against worry. Winning the war against worry. So Paul deals with some other topics. Let's hit them while we're on our way to deal with this topic of worry. First of all, he tells us, and I'm I'm putting it in the, I'm, I'm kind of putting my outline together under the terms commit. I want you to commit to do four things. That's how I understand this passage. If you're going to win the war against worry, if you're going to have spiritual stability, you, may, you need to make four commitments to God this morning. Four commitments to God. Verses 1 through 5, commit to a right standing with God. That's what he says in verses 1 through 5. Therefore, my beloved brethren, and my much longed for. So he loved them and he wanted to see them again. My joy, my crown. They were a joy to his heart when he reflected on them. They were the crown that he would someday receive from God because he had started that church and won many of them to Christ. In the Lord, he says what? Stand fast. So that's why I'm saying commit to right standing. That's a principle that Paul lays down. Stand fast in the Lord, beloved Christian. And I implore, which is the old word for I beg of you, I beseech you, I implore Iodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, 
And some commentators say that that's actually a name. Others, it's He's just talking about maybe someone who received the letter initially, shared it with the church. And I urge you, true companion, maybe one of the leaders there, one of the elders in the church, help these women who labored with me in the gospel with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord. So he's contrasting. Don't be disunified. Be unified and rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is coming back. The Lord's soon going to return. So get ready, he says. Be unified. Don't be fighting over things. So he tells them, commit to a right standing. You know, the reality is, even in a great church, even in a good church, and and uh, there are problems. And this was a good church. Matter of fact, many commentators say that this was Paul's favorite church. Out of all the churches he planted, the Philippian church was his favorite. Now, it's like kids. You don't say, you're my favorite. You don't say that with our kids or our grandkids. Paul probably wouldn't say that about a church. But over and over, he talked about what joy they brought to him, what gladness he had in them, what happiness he experienced as he thought about them. They, they reciprocated with Paul. There was a close relationship. So this is, this is a, a, one of Paul's favorite places, Paul's, Paul's favorite group of believers, but they still had problems. There was some division going on. And he admits that. And so because he loved them, you've heard me say this before, because he loved them, he addressed the problem. When we love people, we're willing to confront them. I like to say Christians care front, not just confront. We care enough about people. When we really love people, whether it's our children and it's wrong behavior or it's even a spouse and there's something that we feel is is not right, or uh, in the body of Christ, or colleague at work, if we really, really do care, then we're going to have to address the problem. That's why Paul brings up the problem. And what was the problem? Well, it's mentioned here in verse 2. Here are two respected women. And as I read, many of the commentators talked about these two women, Yodia and Sikhtaki, maybe were pillars in the church. After Paul went to Philippi, remember, he led the uh, demon-possessed girl to the Lord. He led Lydia, the seller of purple, to the Lord. He led the Philippian jailer to the Lord. That these two women maybe were contacts or close companions of Lydia. And they were like pillars in the church, charter members in the church. Now, we don't know that for sure. It's a little bit of conjecture. But they were leading women in the church, and they were at odds with one another. Matter of fact, someone has uh, translated their names instead of uh, Eodia and Sittiki. They translated them, or they say them, odious and so touchy. (laughs) Maybe. Odious and so touchy might describe them in one way or another. But Paul is, is correcting this problem, and he names them by name in front of the rest of the church. That's pretty serious. We would call that mm, less than maybe discreet, but he deals with the problem. And the point is we cannot have a right standing before God 
or even a, a good testimony before the world if we're divided and we lack unity. We can't have a great testimony before God or the world if we are divided as a body of believers and there's a, there's a little skirmish or a little war going on between people in the church and maybe even in this case, leaders in the church. That's why one of my prayers right now and with our staff we've been praying together, God, help us in this transition as I exit off the, the, the pastoral staff and, and uh, no longer the senior pastor and the church calls someone because it's easy for the church to say, well, this is what I want or this is what I'm looking for or this is what I like. And it'd be easy for the church to become divided. Listen, what we're looking for in the next pastor is someone that, that fulfills 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. That's the primary calling. So we have to set aside some of our personal preferences and our personal desires and don't allow them to become primary and even to the fact that it could hurt the church. Because love defers to others. The Bible says love seeks not its own, but what is in the best interest of others. And this problem was not a doctrinal problem. Verse 2, he's not dealing, if it was a doctrinal problem, Paul would have addressed it. It was not doctrinal, it was relational. It was not doctrinal, it was personal. And so he names it. As unpalatable as it seems and as unpalatable as it is, sometimes troublemakers are often church makers or church members. We don't want to be those people. We certainly don't. MacArthur makes this statement. He said, the more isolated a believer is from other Christians, the more spiritually unstable they're most likely to become. We need one another in spite of our differences, in spite of our likes and dislikes. We need one another because it rounds us out. And we can't isolate. We can't run away. We can't say, I won't participate. I'll drop out of this or I'll drop out of that. Because then you become an unstable believer. You don't lose your salvation, but you become an unstable, spiritually unstable believer. So Paul is saying to them, instead of needless, needlessly bickering, joyfully anticipate the return of the Lord. That will draw you together. That will pull you together. It's a, it has a unifying effect. It has a purifying effect, we know from the New Testament. Anticipating the Lord's coming, and if he came back right now, what would we be doing? What would we be saying? How would we be working together? He says, think about that as a unifying and purifying effect. So he's telling them, commit to a right standing with one another, with your God, and before the church and the world. Second, look at verses 6 and 7. He tells them, commit to right praying. Commit to right praying. Let me read those verses. Be anxious, or the old King James, careful or full of care for nothing. Don't let anything drive you to uh, uh, the fringes of, uh, of carelessness, a ragged edge. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. 
And as a result, the peace of God, which passes your understanding, where you can't comprehend it, you, don't, you won't understand this. This doesn't make sense when you're in the midst of trouble that the peace of God, he says, will guard your heart and your minds through Christ Jesus. So commit to right praying. Paul doesn't simply tell us, pray about your problems. That, that would be a little simplistic, wouldn't it? He doesn't just say, you got a problem, pray about it. Uh, and call me in the morning. Take two aspirin, two prayers, call me in the morning. He doesn't say that. He uses three different words, and I want to point them out to you. You've probably heard it before. He uses three different words to describe what is right praying. Okay, let's talk about that. What is right praying? The first word is the word prayer, prosuke in the Greek language. And it's the general word for talking to God. When you pray, you're talking to God, just like when you talk to your family member or neighbor or somebody at work. That's the idea, but it, it's a little bit more than that. We could act, accurately call it adoration or worship. When we go to God, we're adoring him. God, thank you that you're the creator of all. Thank you that you saw me in my sin. Thank you that your son came in my stead. Thank you that he rose from the grave, that he ascended into heaven. He's praying for me right now, and we adore God. So prayer is talking about talking to God in adoration and contemplation of what he has done for us and who he is. So Whenever we find ourselves worrying, we ought to get alone and get to God and worship him because it puts everything in perspective. You've heard me say it before. When we worship God, this morning we sang five hymns and we listed Christine play another one. We, we listened to six different songs and they were all about God and our relationship with him. When we sing, when we adore God, when we worship, it, it pushes God back to the top of the pile in our life, we could say. Because uh, job and finances and bosses and family members and, and problems tend to pull God down and push themselves to the top of the list in our life. But when we adore God, we see how great he is, how big he is, uh, what gravitas he should have in our life. And it push, worship pushes God back to his proper perspective and everything else in life falls into its proper place. So that's why we worship, not because God is so needy that he's got to hear us sing and talk about him. No, it's for us as well. It helps us. So when we worship, when we adore God in adoration, it makes our worries and our, our concerns and our cares all kind of melt away or at least fall into the proper perspective. With God, not a problem. I think I said this not, not too long ago somewhere. I think it was on a Sunday night or somewhere. I was talking about when our kids were at home and they started to drive and they would take the car into the garage a little bit too far and bump stuff. You know, most of us, we have stuff in the garage besides cars. I hung from the ceiling a string on a tennis ball and it said, Big God. And on the other side, it said, small problems okay that that ball did two things 
first it kept them from running into the wall or the other stuff that was in the garage. But it was a reminder when that, when that ball touched the windshield, stop. But they would see the words, all of us would see the words, big God, small problem. It reminded us that we have a big God. And all of our problems are relatively small. They are small compared to our big God. It shows us the majesty of God. He is big enough to solve our problems if we yield them and ourselves to him. That's what adoration does. That's what, that's what prayer does. The second word here that Paul uses is supplication. Adoration, supplication, we could say. What is supplication? I think you know. Supplication is a passionate a passionate sharing of our needs and our problems with the one, the one and only person that can do something about them, and that is the eternal God in heaven. And now, we're not, we're not heard for our much speaking. Jesus reminds us of that in Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. God doesn't cave to our request because we just bombard heaven constantly and he, we wear him out. That's not the picture in Scripture. We're to come unceasingly before him. But our supplication is when there is a heavy situation, there is a big problem, there is a, a load on our heart or on our mind, and, and we are supplicating God. We're passionately saying, God, you must work. Here is the situation. Oh, God, I can't do anything about it. You must work. You must act. Your arm must move in this situation. That's what supplication is, passionate sharing of our needs. Our Father still wants us to hear us asking and by the way, Jesus prayed that way. Jesus prayed that way in the garden. He, he prayed passionately. The night before he was crucified, the morning before he was crucified. And so don't, don't mix up supplication as being carnal energy. Well, I got to pray loud. Or I got I to get worked up in my prayer. It's not carnal energy, but one of spiritual intensity we could say. Not carnal energy, but spiritual intensity. Oh, God. I have no other way. No other avenue. You must work. You must restore. So, adoration, supplication, and what is the, what is the next thing he says? With thanksgiving. So, we could say it if you want to make it in preacher talk, I guess, adoration, supplication, and appreciation. He says, with thanksgiving. We all get that. We thank God. If, if we did nothing in our prayer, skip the first two. If we did nothing but list to God all the things that we're thankful for in our life and what he's done for us, just a, a thankless, it would change our perspective on life. It would change our attitude towards life. But sometimes we're like the 10 lepers that Jesus healed. Remember, he cleansed them all. Only one came back and thanked him. I wonder if the percentage is any higher today in New Testament living in the church. Is it any higher? We are quick to ask when we have a need, 
but slow to appreciate and express our appreciation. And what does he say in the next verse? The results are peace of God. The peace of God will guard your heart and mind. God stations the soldiers there. Maybe we could even say, because other references kind of picture it this way, the angels will guard our heart and our mind. They station themselves. They garrison themselves at our heart and mind. A peace that is beyond explanation. Now, Paul was chained to a Roman soldier who guarded him day and night. And in like manner, the peace of God will garrison our hearts, stand sentry duty at our heart's door, at our mind's door. God will post the sentry of peace at our heart. That doesn't mean that there's an absence of trials. It simply means that there is a, 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 a confidence within. We're always going to have trial. God doesn't say, well, if you pray, I'll take away all your trial. He doesn't say that. And we know better. But he does say, if you will pray properly, adoration, supplication, appreciation, maybe we would say, if you pray properly, and you pray it regularly, then I will station the sentry of peace at your heart. You'll go through trials, but you'll go through them with a smile on your face, with a confidence about heaven what he's telling us the results are a peace of God will guard your heart I remember quite clearly when President Reagan was shot he was loved he's will go down in history as one of the greatest presidents of all time certainly in modern history when he was shot by John Hinckley Jr. who by the way just got out of prison after serving 41 years for trying to kill the president. And he did it to try and get the notice and attention of a Hollywood actress. That's why he did it. We would say that's a pretty flippant reason. And we all know Hollywood actresses don't even read the paper. They maybe can't read, period. I don't know. <laughs> so he probably didn't get what he was after. But when, when Reagan was shot, the bodyguards threw the president into his limo. They opened the door and threw him into the limo. And what did they do? Did they hit the pavement? Did they duck? Oh, no. That's not what the bodyguards did. They stood tall and they looked around for the shooter. They were willing to take a bullet for the president. They were willing to sacrifice their life for the president. They didn't duck. They didn't hit the pavement. They stood tall and, 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 and looked for the shooter. They were trained to protect the president. That's what the bodyguards do. That's what the Secret Service does. They're trained to protect the president. Proper praying. Proper praying will protect your heart with peace. Peace will stand tall and protect your heart and your mind. That's what proper praying does. Biblical Daniel is the perfect illustration of this. Remember the king was connived, tricked, maybe we would say, by the other presidents into passing a law that no one could pray for a month except to him. He knew he wasn't God. 
but he kind of liked the idea anyway. So he, he signs the law. Well, then they were watching Daniel because Daniel had a pattern of praying every single day at a certain time throughout the day. And they caught him in the act. Daniel is thrown into the lion's den. So here's Daniel in, these, in, in the midst of these ravenous beasts that could have crushed him at any moment. And he's asleep. And the, when the king comes to the comes to the lion's den he he hadn't slept a wink all night he loved daniel he knew how good daniel had been to him in the kingdom and he hadn't slept a, the bible says he was pacing up and down in the palace he didn't sleep a wink his heart was not guarded but daniel was sleeping with a with a lion's mane as a pillow is the picture i have in my mind he's got perfect peace in the midst of these trials why? Because Daniel had a life of prayer. Daniel understood what this passage is saying, what this passage is teaching. While the king couldn't sleep, Daniel was asleep. So commit to right praying. Next, look at verse 8. Commit to right thinking. Now, this is, a, this is one of those verses, really the whole chapter, but really this is one of those verses that we should memorize. So let's look at verse 8. Finally, brethren, and he uses this word whatever over and over because it's kind of a, a, an umbrella a picture. Whatever, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue and if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. So we have to commit ourselves to a right standing, being in a right relationship with other believers. We have to commit ourselves to right praying. If we're going to have spiritual stability, we have to commit ourselves to right thinking. And the Bible warns us about our thinking over and over. Peace involves both the heart, God promises to guard your heart, and it also involves our mind. Our mind gets upset, our heart gets upset. Peace involves both the heart and the mind. And the Bible says it this way. I often use this as a hospital verse when I'm visiting people, praying with people. Isaiah 26, 3. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee, whose mind is fixed on God. You fix your mind on the goodness of God and you can go through your surgeries or your trials or your heartaches with the peace of God. That's what he tells us. Thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed, fixed, fastened to God. Wrong thinking leads to wrong feelings. You think wrong, you will feel wrong. You have a wrong perspective about God, the world, yourself, others, you will feel wrong as well. A lot of the Christian life is straightening out our thinking. It is. You've heard me say many times, stinking thinking leads to lousy living. It does. Bad theology leads to a bad life. It does. Thoughts are real. 
Thoughts are powerful even though we can't measure them or we can't see them because they're going on in our mind, but they're very real and they're very powerful in their outcome. That's why the Bible says this statement. We must bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ, 2 Corinthians 10.5. Now stop there for a moment. The Bible is saying to us, you better be disciplined about your thinking. You better be disciplined about what you meditate on, what you watch, what you listen to, what goes into your head. And bring every one of those thoughts into captivity. Bring them under the direction of God. If they're not proper, they're not right, expel them out of your life. Bring every thought into captivity. Put them in the jailhouse, maybe we could say. If they're improper, lock them away. Bring every thought into the obedience of Christ. Measure it by what pleases God. I love what John Stone Street says. He says, ideas have consequences. Bad ideas have victims. It's true. Mein Kampf. What Hitler wrote about my life, my struggle, I think it is. They said for every word in Mein Kampf, it was like, 50 people died. Every word in that entire book because millions of people died. Same way with many of the other bad ideas that were putting down, put down by, by writers in the past. Ideas have consequences. Bad ideas have victims. <clears throat> Whether that be communism or some other false teaching, they have consequences. Someone said it this way, you sow a thought and you reap an action. You sow an action and you reap a habit. You sow a habit and you'll reap a character. You sow character and you'll reap a destiny. That is true. It all starts with a thought. A thought leads to action. Actions lead to habits, lifelong habits. Habits really reveal character, and character determines our destiny. So our thoughts are very powerful seeds, and that's why the Bible has a great deal to say about our thinking. And that's what he's doing here in verse 8. Whatsoever is true, honest, and just, I'm going to lump those two together. <clears throat> Dr. Walter Calvert, medical doctor, in his study said the average person's anxiety is focused upon these. 40% of our thinking is on thing, worry is on things that will never happen. 30% of, of, about, of our worrying is about things that are in the past and they cannot be changed. That's 70%. 12% is about criticism by others. Most of the time it's untrue. 10% is about our health, which only gets worse when we worry, you know. And then 8% are about real problems that we're facing. So he's saying, he's saying from his studies and, and the research that he and others have done that really we worry about 92% of the things that are either bad for us or untrue or they have no beneficial value. Satan wants us to worry. 
Satan wants us to have wrong thinking. The Bible says it this way. Jesus said it this way. Satan is a liar, and he is the father of lies. In other words, all lies that we hear, that we believe, have their, their, you could trace their origin all the way back to Satan. All lies all the way go back to, to the genesis of Satan. He is the father of lies, John 8, 44. And he wants us to believe lies. He wants us to believe lies that he tells us and that other people tell us. He's the father of lies. That's one of his main tools in destroying believers is getting them to believe lies. You've heard me say, I've read the research and, and talked about it before, we talk to ourselves 1,300 words a minute. The average person talks to themselves. We call it self-talk and counseling. We talk to ourselves 1,300 words a minute. Now, nobody can talk 1,300 words a minute, okay? As even the fastest talkers can't talk 1,300 words a minute. But we can talk to ourselves 1,300 words a minute. In other words, you're talking to yourself all the time. You walk into a room, and you're telling yourself something about the people in the room. Well, they don't like me. They're staring at me. You know, my hair isn't good or whatever, you know. You're telling yourself something about the people in the room. I'll give you a classic example in the Bible. God led the Jews out of Egypt under the hand of Pharaoh who was chasing them, parted the Red Sea, gave them the fire by night, gave them the cloud of pillar of cloud by daytime, provided them man in the wilderness, brought water out of rocks, gave them everything that they needed. What did they say to themselves? God's brought us out here in the desert to kill us. Moses doesn't care about us. We're going to starve to death. The Egyptians will finally catch us. They told themselves lie after lie after lie. And they were all untrue. God did love them. He just delivered them in the most miraculous way of any nation on the history of the earth. They told themselves lies. And as a result of that, they were miserable and God had to judge them and they never saw the promised land. They missed out on all the blessings that God had intended for them. Because they didn't believe God, they believed their self-talk in the lies of the devil. Now that's just a, an example, an illustration of how we tend to talk to ourselves. It's very easy for us in our self-talk to tell us either God's truth or Satan's lies. I'll give you the example on the other end. Here's Paul and Silas. We read about it. This is how this... This book came about, the book of Philippians. Paul and Silas come into, the, into Philippi. They preach the gospel. Uh, uh, a demon girl gets delivered. As a result of that, the masters say, this guy's preaching false God. We gotta, they throw him in the prison. Here is Paul. They've been beaten. Their feet are in stocks. Their hands are in shackles. Did they tell themselves lies like the Israelites did? Well, God doesn't love us. God, God sure is meanie, and this is what we get for serving God. We're thrown in prison, beaten, probably going to die here. No. They started singing, the Bible says. Truths about God. 
truths about God when they could have told themselves lies about God in their circumstances, and they started singing Amazing Grace. Well, it hadn't been written quite yet, but they sang something like that about God and his grace and how he was going to use this, and he did use that circumstance. The jailer got converted. The church was established. It became his favorite church because they told themselves the truth about God and didn't believe the lies of self-talk or Satan. Two extremes, two examples. So he's telling us to dwell on what is good and honest and just. And there's a huge difference between deconstructive worry which depletes our energy and paralyzes our action versus constructive concern. Nothing wrong with having constructive concern. God has given us the ability to plan, to think, and to prepare. That's constructive concern. Well, I'm, I'm, I've got this coming. I've got to get prepared. This is what's going to happen. How can I uh, be ready for that, et cetera? That's constructive concern. There's a big difference between deconstructive worry and constructive concern. We're just seeking a solution for a problem. Then he says, whatever is pure, lovely, and of good report. Pure is referring to moral purity. There are many things that we should not give our attention to because they're dishonorable. They're impure. And they'll defile our minds and they get lodged there and it's hard to get them out. Whatever possesses what he's to say, virtue and praise. A believer is to take the high and noble ground in his thinking, in his thought life. And if it's virtuous, we rehearse it. If it's virtuous, we park there. We stay there. And we we dwell on those good, pure, virtuous, praiseworthy things. And in our world, that isn't easy because we're surrounded by stuff that's not virtuous, pure, praiseworthy, and pleasing to God. So we have to be discerning. That's why he says, bring every thought into captivity. Control your thinking. What comes into the eye gate, what comes into the ear gate. Control your thinking. Last, look at verse 9. Commit to right living. I'll wrap up here. The things which you have learned and received and heard and saw in me. This is several terms there. Learned, received, heard, and saw in me. These do, and the God of peace will be with you. So Paul is basically saying, what you saw me do, how you saw me live, what you heard me say, mimic those things. Do those things. Paul is saying, you cannot separate Outward actions from inward attitudes. They're inseparably tied together. Uh, Our attitudes will come out in our actions. Our thoughts will come out in what we do in life. Sin always results in unrest. Purity always results in peace. Now, that is a Bible principle. And you can all think, we can all think of people who've got sin I mean maximum sin in their life, and it's unrest. And many of them in our world, whether it be Hollywood or music culture or whatever it is, they got so much sin in their life, so much unrest in their life, they say, I can't live this way, and they take their life. Sin results in unrest, unhappiness. And 
a, a, a disheveled inner man, but just the opposite. Purity results in peace. The Bible says it this way, and the work of righteousness shall be peace, and the effects of righteousness, quietness and assurance forever, Isaiah 32, 17. I don't know how it could be said any clearer. The results of, of, of righteousness is peace. In Paul's ministry, he not only taught the word, he says in verse 9, he lived the word. He knew that biblical truth in the mind stored up in your head was not enough. It had to be lived out every day. And so God isn't going to reward us according to just how much Bible knowledge we've accumulated. It's how we lived it out. And that's what he's reminding us of. But be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. You could come to every service that this church had where the Bible is preached and store up vast amounts of scriptural knowledge but still not be pleasing to God. You've got to live it out. And that's where the rubber meets the road. Just as Philippians 4, where we're in today, is the peace chapter of the New Testament, James chapter 4 is the war chapter. It begins with a question, where do wars and fights come from among you? That's how we start chapter 4, verse 1. Where do these wars and fightings uh, come from that you're experiencing? Then James explains the cause of the war. He says, wrong praying. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss. Wrong praying. And then wrong thinking. Purify your hearts, you double-minded, he says in verse 8. Wrong thinking, you're double-minded, and then wrong living. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? The very things that Paul is talking about here that bring about peace, James is pointing out it causes the wars and the disunity and what brings them about. So there's no middle ground for us, folks. Either we yield our heart and our mind to the Spirit of God and we practice right praying, right thinking, and right living, or we yield to our flesh and we're torn apart because of wrong thinking, maybe no praying or wrong praying and wrong living. Every one of us here have to decide, am I going to, Am I going to pray the way the Bible teaches? Is that going to be a regular, faithful part of my life, this adoration, this supplication, this expressing appreciation to God? Am I going to think on the right things and then result in joyful living? Or am I just going to do my own thing and experience what comes? God wants you to have peace. God wants you to have joy. God wants you to have spiritual stability. He wants you to win the war against worry. That's what this passage is saying. Thanks for listening to sermons from the pulpit at Red Rocks Baptist Church. For more information about our church, visit our website at www.redrocksbaptistchurch.org or follow us on Instagram at Red Rocks Baptist.